Blog Talk Radio. I had you. There we go. Somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Hello there, children. Hey, hey, kids. <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. And now, the hosts of the Stupid Cancer Show, Lisa Bernhard and Matthew Zachary. Woohoo! Monday, November 15th, and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adults with cancer. I am Matthew Zachary, a 14-year young adult survivor of pediatric brain cancer. And I'm Lisa Bernhardt, 15-year young adult breast cancer survivor, and we're your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. Got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Well, get busy living because the Stupid Cancer Show is here to change the world one chemo infusion at a time. Tonight's show, our topic is Cause Marketing with David Hezekiel, founder and president of the Cause Marketing Forum, Gail Sulik, Ph.D., medical sociologist and author of Pink Ribbon Blues, How Breast Cancer Culture Undermines Women's Health. And kicking it off in our Survivor Spotlight, Naomi Bartley, young adult survivor of leukemia and thyroid cancer and developer of iCancer app for iOS. As a reminder, this broadcast is a production of the I'm Too Young for This Cancer Foundation. Online at i2y.com, we help young adults fight cancer every single day and are bringing the cause of cancer under 40 to the national spotlight where it belongs because it's not okay. 70,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer every year. So hello, my friends, and our friends, and your friends, and welcome to yet another fun-filled and exciting romp through the hay on tonight's Stupid Cancer Show, where remission is not a cure, and survivorship is really all that matters. It is all that matters, Matthew. And a Stupid Cancer welcome to all of our first-time listeners on the Blog Talk Radio Network and on iTunes. You can always get us on iTunes. Download us, and it'll come regularly right into your... uh, Right into your iTunes, that would be, as we broadcast live from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. And a special welcome to anyone that attended our Stupid Cancer Boot Camp in New Jersey this past weekend. Welcome to the show. And, uh, of course, please welcome, always here, he's like, a, he's like an appendage, I guess. Hi. Our Chief Cancer Anarchist and Vice President of the Grassroots Programming, Mr. Jack Buffar. Hey, guess what I was just doing? Just Jack. I was downloading. No, we don't want to know about that kind of stuff. I was here. on iTunes and I was downloading stuff into my iTunes. Is that okay? 
Is that how it works? He, he's making fun of me. He's not speaking into his mic, so I can't even hear him. I am speaking. Oh, that's into much my better. Mind. That's much better. You're not listening to me. He's as making usual. fun of me. I'm so used to not listening to you. But Jack will be monitoring our live interactive concurrent chat room. So if you have questions for our guests, let them know. We'll do our best to get them answered. We're missing her. We're loving her. Amanda Freeman, our fabulous young adult survivor and broadcast production assistant, not here with us in studio tonight, but as always in our thoughts. And we uh, love her to death, and hopefully she'll be back soon. We love you, Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Hang in there. We have uh, two in-studio guests welcoming back uh, Mr. Kenneth Kane, our VP of, uh, uh, what are you, operations, right? We have too many VPs. Our VP of operations, Chief Carrot Top. There we go. Yes. <laughs> Chief Red Velvet. Chief, Chief Ginger Vomit. <laughs> There's only one ginger, ginger on the couch tonight. <laughs> and the lovely and talented and soon-to-be fully-time employed uh, in, uh, attorney at law, a uh, 25-year survivor, Susan Moser. Welcome and to the uh, studio. And Team Stupid Cancer Half Marathon runner. Right, and Team Stupid Cancer Half Marathon runner. Absolutely fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. She's waving. She is waving. So, uh, how the hell are you guys? Good. Great. Yeah? Wasn't Saturday fun? Saturday was great. You what, guys, wait, what happened? We were at the boot camp, Mr. That's brain right. Cancer Survivor. Yes, 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 I did have brain cancer. I heard the boot camp was fantastic. It went really, really well. It served exactly its purpose, which is to be a very intimate and small um, uh, type of um, seminar, workshop for like 20 to 40 people with experts, and it features, unlike the OMG Summit, our international conference, which features people from all around the world, uh, the people who speak at the boot camps are local. We want the local survivors who come to know about their local resources, their local social workers and survivorship program directors and whatnot. So, so tell everybody where you were and who you spoke to and what exactly you spoke about. This boot camp was held in Mount Laurel, New Jersey, which is exit four on the New Jersey Turnpike, for those of you who have any idea what that means. It's as close to Pennsylvania as you can be while staying in New Jersey. Actually, it's where, like, the people from The Sopranos dump the bodies, actually. Nice. Right. Yes, that's around that that area there. Um, It is about... Not to generalize for those poor folks. No, 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 no. (laughs) And and the fact that I made it back alive is very heartwarming. It is very heartwarming. So uh, it's about, I don't know, maybe 15 minutes from Philadelphia, so we work with the local... New Jersey chapter of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, National Partners, and executed the inaugural boot camp for Southern New Jersey and Philadelphia. The, you were at a hospital. We were at a uh, actually the it's W a, the hotel. Yeah. The, you know how like Marriott has the Marriott Courtyard as like the chief sure. travelers hotel. Well, the W has attempted to create like a boutique travelers hotel and it failed miserably because it's a little too nice. <laughs> it's called the Aloft. It's this oh, new sure. brand that W yeah. has released. Uh, to the public, and it's a gorgeous hotel. It's very modern. It doesn't feel like it is um, inexpensive or comparable to, you know, like um, a Red Roof Inn or a or a Best Western or, or Mar- even the the New Holiday Inn Express. But anyway, so we had it at this place. It was a perfect venue, um, and every time we do a um, a boot camp, it's about one or two specific topics that are related. Unlike the summit, again, which covers as many things as possible with a billion breakout sessions. And this particular boot camp was about uh, sexuality, intimacy, relationships, and fertility, which kind of all go hand in hand. Of course. And we had incredible local speakers. Uh, our keynote speaker was the illustrious Tamika Felder of Tamika and Friends, one of the nation's foremost cervical cancer advocates. Uh, she's an extraordinary woman, very energetic, a force of nature, did a great job. We had a, um, a survivor panel session, and we had uh, the fertility. fertility. The, the director of survivorship from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia was there. 
the director of uh, oncology, oncofertility programming at the Cancer Institute in New Jersey was there, and a young adult survivor named Beth Harley, who um, is a, I believe she was a social worker, if I'm not correct. Um, Jack's, Jack's nodding in, in awkward agreement. Okay. I am. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just incredibly successful. We, we had just the right amount of people there. Right. We had a lot of good questions from from our participants right. of each panel. And people started warming up. Like, they, they you know, people start quiet. They don't know who they are. There are a lot of brand-new people there. They don't know what's going on. And by the end of the day, people were talking to each other. We got already people blogging about the event. It was very, very exciting. And uh, we're looking forward to bringing these boot camps to your neck of the woods, listeners out there. If you're interested in learning more about us bringing a boot camp to your neck of the woods, please email info at i2y.com, and we'll do our best to uh, open up a conversation and see if it works. Do we have a boot camp coming up in another city that we should tell anybody about or one that we're planning? Uh, we're trying to plan a boot camp uh, in Chicago in February with Northwestern University. Mm-hmm. Just a quick and dirty Thursday night, not a Saturday uh, boot camp, where it's like a yuppie after work, 7th and I with a wine and cheese afterwards. Um, I know that Minnesota wants to do a boot camp. Seattle, Seattle. is someplace we're trying to explore. We've never really had one in San Francisco, but there's a group coagulating there. Um, D.C. is a hot spot for us. Nashville is a hot spot for us. Um, Detroit is up and coming. And um, even even St. Louis is now going on. Oh, we could do something in Des Moines. I mean, we, have, we have pockets all over the country. It's very exciting. It's something we're very very anxious to roll out around the country and make sort of the standard thing that's done always in partnership. It's always in partnership. We do nothing on our own, and that's why it works really well. So we do some things on our own, just not the boot camps. Jack does some things on his own. <laughs> what? We let Jack do some things on his own? Wait a minute. Uh, can I go rogue? I think that's out of sight, out of mind. <laughs> anyway, well, that, so great. if you're out there and you want to do or at least explore events like this, certainly email us, and we can uh, help cultivate the relationship with your local LLS and whatever other resources are out there. And we'll guide you and, uh, you know, see see what kind of response we get, and we can we can do this. Well, and here's a comment in the chat room. Just to, to that point, there's a, a gentleman in the chat room. I assume it's a general, and if you're not, I'm sorry, named Zar, Z-H-A-R, who just commented that a hotel is better than a hospital, and I think that speaks to the nature of the boot camps. They are not held at hospitals. We do not want them at hospitals. We want to create a non-clinical setting for survivors to come and have it be fun and familiar and engaging. And if you want to have a support group at a hospital, go to your hospital. Yeah, and that's one of the things that people say on our fee- on the feedback forums regarding our happy hours and our boot camps is like, you know, this this is a support group that's not sitting in a circle at the hospital discussing our feelings. We can be out. We can be active. We can get busy living. And have fun while receiving the support that we all need. At the W Hotel. Right, exactly. So I've been informed that Czar is female, and I pronounced it properly. Great. So <laughs> my inadvertent apology for getting your name right and your sex wrong. Well, it's because Czar sounds very superhero-ish. Yes, definitely. It's like He-Man versus Czar versus Godzilla versus <laughs> Megalon, right, exactly. Well, let's get to our, uh, let's get to our spotlight tonight. And... Uh, what Get this taken care of. I'm excited to have her on the show. Man, am I excited to have this on girl on the show. I'm sorry, not a girl. She's a young woman. She's my peer. Naomi Bartley works as a clinical research associate at the pharmaceutical company Metamune, a biotechnology master's candidate at John Hopkins University, and is a board member for the American Childhood Cancer Organization. She's a two-time cancer survivor diagnosed at age of seven, with AML, she represents one of the first groups of childhood cancer survivors who have undergone a bone marrow transplant. Her second cancer, of thyroid, 
was a direct result of her first cancer treatment, Gotta Love the Gift That Keeps on Giving, Consequence of Cure. She turns her into a powerful advocate, I can speak to that, for the development of new targeted therapies to treat childhood cancer. In that role, Naomi founded her own organization, Naomi's Hope for a Cure, and hosted a gala event in Washington, which raised a quarter million dollars for the American Childhood Cancer Organization. God bless her. She's a force of nature and the developer of iCancer, an iPhone, iTouch, iOS app to help manage the cancer journey. Please welcome to the show my friend and yours, Naomi Bartley. Naomi. Hi, Naomi. Hello. You with that? Oh, wait. I thought I alluded her. Here we go. No, you there? I'm here. Can you okay, hear me? Okay, sorry. Yeah, we're having, like, gremlin tech problems tonight, but everything's okay. Oh, good, good. Welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be back. We're excited. You were on the show ever? Three years ago. Yeah, um, a long time ago. In October 2007. And you were like a uh, guinea pig back then. It's been busy since then. I'm now a mom of That's my right. beautiful daughter, Hope. and uh, Congratulations. She's, uh, two years old now, happy and healthy, and it's great to be back on the show. And and um, you know your story. Obviously, you were diagnosed as a as a single digit toddler in a sense, and then you know cancer came back to bite you in the ass again, all because you didn't die the first time. Right. So, you know, Try congratulations. The time, you know, and I, I gave it the bird once more time. You know, exactly. and uh, I'm here to uh, show what you can do when you're given a second chance and a, a third chance too. I guess. Did they? Do you, did they tell you you'd never be able to get pregnant? Was that a conversation? You can't really have that at seven, but when you had it, when you had the thyroid cancer, how old were you? I was 24 when I had the um, when I was diagnosed with papillary thyroid cancer, but I was actually told before that that I was going to be infertile, and um, pretty much you know went through my life thinking that if I was going to have a child, it would be through adoption, and um, got married and my. Uh, amazing husband Steve. That was something that we talked about a lot before we got married, not being able to have children. Um, and on April Fools, <laughs> 2008, I found out I was pregnant. I was just about to do a follow-up thyroid scan, actually, and took a pregnancy test before um, doing the thyroid scan and found out I was amazingly 12 weeks pregnant. And um, my beautiful daughter Hope was uh, born 25 weeks gestation. She was born incredibly preterm due to exposure to abdominal radiation that I had caused um, quite a few different issues with my pregnancy. Um, so she was born weighing just one pound, seven ounces, and was in the NICU for 101 days. And um, had, came home after that, though, and was a fighter and uh, is, is doing amazing right now. She's caught up with all her milestones and is just a, an amazing two-year-old. We're having a lot of fun with her right now. What a fantastic uh, story in the end. That's that's terrific. Tell us backtrack for us a little bit Naomi and tell us about what doctors said about your two cancers being linked. Um so when I was treated at 7 with um uh, to treat the AML, I had total body body radiation and I was um given 1200 rods of radiation and that was in preparation for the bone marrow transplant that I was given and I was lucky enough to have a perfect match. My older brother Nathan was the donor. And um, because of the total body radiation, I had other health issues, um, including cataracts, um, cardi- uh, cardiovascular problems, but um, infertility is what they also had thought. But I did have different hormonal problems leading to them thinking I would be infertile. And then also the thyroid cancer was a direct result of being exposed to the total body radiation. 
So they were not surprised that I was diagnosed with a secondary cancer. They thought it would either be a breast cancer or a thyroid cancer. Those are typically the secondary cancers seen from total body radiation at that age. And speak more about the struggles you went through when you were pregnant that you just alluded to as a result of your treatment. Yes, yeah, so um, I, when I found out I was 12 weeks pregnant, um, I was lucky enough to have a fabulous OBGYN follow my pregnancy, and she was very hands-on and very proactive um, looking for any possible issues, and um, they determined that I had preeclampsia, uh, um, and I was put on um, beta blockers, and also was determined to have a shortened cervix, and um, so that is what ultimately led to uh, giving a birth to hope preterm. My water broke out uh, 24 weeks, and um, the shortened cervix and incompetent cervix was uh, linked to having abdominal radiation. So that was ultimately why she was born um, incredibly early. Naomi, we have a question from the chat room. What year uh, did you have your bone marrow transplant? In 1987. Wow, that was right at the beginning of it actually working for people, wasn't right. it? Right. Um, they actually um, did a documentary at, uh, in Canada. I had my transplant at uh, Sick Kids in Toronto. And some of the technology that they used back then was uh, quite surprising. They actually used a meat grinder to grind uh, my brother's bone. Uh, they took some hip bone uh, from him. They didn't do bone marrow aspirates back then. They actually took a big chunk of bone from his hip. And then they used a garlic press, actually, to further get the cells um, after meat grinding it. So it was really... Um, <laughs> Sounds like the Swedish, something the Swedish chef would do. Well, I was going to say... <laughs> <laughs> right, and then Adam, they just threw Adam that Julia into me. Child. I mean, Dr. Uh, Julia Child. Yeah. <laughs> it's more refined now, but, um, I mean, it worked. So I guess those uh, garlic presses came in handy. <laughs> So and and you know I mean I think it's really relevant to talk about you know your your mother Ruth and your brother of course um, your mother Ruth runs an organization called Candlelighters is that correct? It's now called the American Childhood Cancer Organization. Oh, is that what it merged into? Because mm -hmm. I didn't I never put those two together. Okay. Yeah. So Candlelighters is now the American Childhood Cancer Organization, and and you obviously raise money for them. Talk about what what this organization does and why it's important. So it's a national organization that was founded um, over 30 years ago, and it started as a, a small grassroots foundation for parents who, like you had mentioned, it was called Candlelighters, wanted to find you know light um, or some hope in their darkness and felt very alone with uh, having a child diagnosed with cancer and really wanted to reach out to other parents. And since then, it has grown into a national organization. Um, they offer various different services to families who have a child diagnosed, and they're continuing to expand uh, their mission um, to include advocating for uh, targeted therapies and less, um, less aggressive forms of chemotherapy and radiation. Um, to treat childhood cancers, and um, they've really blossomed into having um, different national affiliate, affiliates across the uh, across the country that also reach out to local hospitals to offer support for families. So um, we're actually having the national tree lighting event coming up in December, where families from across America can come to the National Post Office building in in Washington D.C. to meet other families, and it's just a wonderful night to celebrate and um, also remember some of the children that have uh, fought cancer. So it's a wonderful organization, and I'm lucky to be a board member now, actually, and um, it's been very rewarding. 
You know, Naomi, as you talk, we can more and more hear that Canadian, that lovely Canadian lilt in your oh, voice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> about, about, about. <laughs> exactly. We always like to ask our, our friends to the north what your insurance experience was because it's always so much better than ours, and we love the pain of hearing <laughs> how much easier it is for you. So what was it like for you navigating your way through the uh, many appointments and treatments that you went through? Um, you know, it was it was certainly much easier given that um, we don't have to have individual um, uh, health coverage. It's it's obviously a national service that's that's um, sponsored, and so you have a provincial health card that you use to go to your appointments, and you never see a bill. You never have to worry if a doctor's in network or out of network. Um, so that was certainly a relief and something that I've really had a hard time navigating having since moved to the United States, but that's a completely different, <laughs> that could fill an entire hour. Um, but one thing that was difficult for me, um, because I was part of the earlier group of children that survived childhood cancer, we weren't necessarily given a passport to health once we graduated from that childhood um, oncology facility. So pretty much I completed my treatment when I was 16, went off to university and didn't have much guidance at all in terms of um, my medical history so that I could be followed appropriately, which was really important given my um, exposure to different chemotherapy medications and radiation. Um, and so, so that was something that I, I had to follow up on my own and, and constantly a request from my oncology, oncologist to send me um, some of that core information so I could at least have something going to my cardiologist and endocrinologist that I was starting to find um, when I was off at university. And through that, I became, I think, my own health advocate and having to um, really try to track down what my what my medical history was. And I compiled a huge medical binder of medical records that I would take to my follow-up appointments. And that's pretty much what I used until I developed eye cancer to uh, manage my manage my follow-up appointments. And, and, and take um, us through that. How did you actually come... From the world of you know research and cancer advocacy for pediatrics to an app developer for iOS. <laughs> well, um, it was interesting after having um, or being pregnant with Hope. Um, there are quite a few different apps out there, um, Baby Bump, and even apps for pumping for breast milk, um, calculating you know how much breast milk you have. Apps for nutrition. Apps for um, diabetes, and um, after I used a couple of the apps that were very helpful for me with um, my pregnancy, I thought, well, there must be something out there for cancer patients. I mean, it's now the leading cause of death, and there must be something out there for cancer patients to manage their care, and I kept on searching cancer, and nothing really would come up. There was a couple of apps for, you know, updates for uh, different research, or there'd be oncology apps where they're actually talking about definitions or some horoscope things because cancer <laughs> with horoscopes. Um, and I just kept on thinking I must be searching something incorrectly um, through my um, through my iPod Touch. And after numerous um, times trying to search, you know, leukemia, oncology, cancer, nothing came up. And I thought, this is crazy. I mean, there's got to be something that helps cancer patients navigate their care. And, to, you know, to my deep surprise, I, I found there was nothing. And being in the medical industry, I work with case report forms in, in my job, and 
um, setting up electronic databases to collect medical information, um, I guess I had the base knowledge of knowing what would, how it would need to be set up so that it's user-friendly. And I contacted a developer in New York and pretty much asked him to be part of this until he said yes. And um, in June, set up a contract with him. By July, we had um, the first beta testing that we were doing. And then by September, it went live. And it just, we had really tight timelines. Um, you know, I hadn't ever done this before, but um, I just, I, I really wanted to offer this to people who, who might find it useful. And it, it's received some great feedback so far. And I hope it's helpful to other people that are maybe listening on the phone that have an iPhone or an iPod Touch. Um, but it, it captures a lot of things that you would need to know um, about your cancer journey, your diagnosis information, different treatments, medications, um, past surgeries. Um, you can store all your contact information. Um, uh, and it also links to your current contacts if you have those on your phone already. Um, lab results, one, really, one thing I really like is you can graph um, your lab results over time just by flipping your, um, your device horizontally. So, um, that's a nice feature to be able to see trends and weight and height and if things are plateauing. It was neat entering my medical records after the app was actually launched and seeing that my height plateaued, uh, you know, very early on, which was an indication that my hormones were off and I could have probably benefited from uh, growth hormone when I was younger. Um, it also uh, keeps track of medical issues, which is really important for um, long-term side effects, making sure that you're providing accurate information between visits to your doctors. That's another thing that I would always find. The doctor would say, oh, how have you been? And I would say, oh, I've been great. And then I would leave the appointment thinking, crap, you know, I, I haven't been great. I've had this and this and this wrong since the last visit. And, um, you know, now I have this device in my hand and I'm able to access that information. Even if there's no internet connection, it's it's on my phone, um, and I can provide an accurate update as to how I've been since the last visit. So, um, you like know, it's just something that I, I was very surprised there wasn't something out there already and something that um, I use quite a lot myself, and it was worth doing just to be able to have the people so far give feedback and for myself to be able to use it at, um, at appointments. It's been really yeah. helpful. Yeah, and I got to check it out when I met you at the – happy hour in D.C. last month. And, right. uh, you know, even though I only got to see it for a few minutes, I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah. Sounds like it's very thorough. Yes. And is this something that is free? And how many downloads have you gotten up to this point? You said it just launched in September? It just launched in December. Um, and how how the Apple Store from the back end works, you can't see how many necessarily you've you've reached until they pay you. So I'm not quite sure for the last month how, how we did, but for September – um, I can't remember actually how many downloads we did, but it was it was encouraging. I definitely you know want to get the word out there. And um, one thing that uh, I've learned from this is that just because you have an app on the iStore doesn't mean that people are necessarily going to be able to find it very easily or know that it's there. So um, you know I'm I'm happy to be spreading the word to let people know that it's out there and it's it's helpful and. Um, the app is 4.99, and what I'm hoping to be able to do with um, some of the money that I make back is um, expand it to the Droid. That's one thing that a lot of people have mentioned is that they would love to have the app, but they have a Droid, and um, so you know we want to be able to make that available for people who have um, the iPad and the Droid. So we're looking to expand into that market as well. 
Well, um, we're actually out of time. I w- really want to thank you for being on the show. W- the, so it's called Eye Cancer, I-C-A-N-C-E-R. We should post yes. that in the chat room, too. Yeah. And four ninety nine. that's the bargain for everything. If you can manage your medical history and records like that and not have to have Internet service and have it in the palm of your hand at a doctor's appointment, that sounds like a pretty great thing. No, it's a big deal. It's, it's good stuff. You're a genius. <laughs> Well, well, thank I, you so much for having me on the show. I no, really it's a pleasure. It was great seeing your mom again when I was in. Uh, I was and with, hearing actually, Nathan play too. And I heard your brother is a. Her brother is a. Um, a a uh, violinist. A pedagogical genius, <laughs> uh, violinist. A, yeah, he's, he's amazing, <laughs> extraordinary guy. Well, you take care of yourself. I look forward to seeing you when I next get down to DC. And congratulations on everything. And hug your daughter. I will. You too. Hug your little guys for us. Okay, take care. Okay, thanks, Naomi. All right, Bye. Naomi Bartley, everybody. Thanks, Naomi. Good stuff. Good stuff. I'm continually amazed how our guests just make things so easy. They take matters into their own hands, call an, a, a developer, get an app done, boom. She's off and running in a matter of months, and she's done something terrific and very useful. Yeah, can we get an app developer, please? We have a lot of listeners. Let's get a nap developer. We need a stupid cancer button on every iPhone. Did you say we, nap developer? Because I'm available yeah. for that. We, we know you're already senior VP of naps. <clears throat> yes, he is. Let's the couch is comfy. It's in the copy. That is true. That is true. All right. Well, uh, let's get to the stupid Speaking cancer. of naps, I'm going to put everyone to sleep right now. Yeah, with your new. Hello, right. I'm Fantastic. Ken Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Alrighty, folks, during this part of the Stupid Cancer Show, we listen to Jack Buffard stammer quite uneloquently through a series of special announcements to let our listeners know about a whole bunch of free stuff, free young adult events, like conferences, happy hours, retreats, scholarships, support groups, concerts, rock climbing events, kayaking campaigns, and more. If you have something coming up that you'd like us to broadcast during this part of the show, Please send an email to Dr. Buffard at jack at i2i.com. His email once again is jack at i2i.com. Thanks, Matt. Doctor of what? All right, folks, your first stop. Events. Buffology. Buffology. Oh, good luck trying to figure that one out. Head on over to events.i2i.com. Events.i2i.com is your one-stop shop for all stupid cancer events happening nationwide. Stay in the loop because something could be happening in your neck of the woods and we don't want you missing out on it, especially if I'm not going to be there. We just added a few happy hours to the schedule, most notably Washington, D.C., so head on over to events.i2y.com for all that information. The buzz surrounding OMG 2011 is almost palpable. The OMG Summit will take place April 16th and 17th, 2011, in New York City. Registration opens at noon on Tuesday, February 1st. Mark it on your calendar. Post it. Tweet it. Hell, bedazzle it for all I care. But do not miss out by not registering for this awesome event. So mark February 1st on your calendar. OMG 2011. Team is home to the nation's first running team exclusively supporting the young adult cancer community. Head on over to TeamStupidCancer.com and make a pledge in support of your favorite runner. Your money directly supports the I'm Too Young for This Cancer Foundation programming, and I am going to put myself on the line here, but as you know, Matthew and Lisa, I work at a spa, and the women at the spa are always begging me to let them spray tan me. So I am going to put myself out there and say, if my Team Stupid Cancer page hits $1,000 by next Monday's radio show, I will allow the girls at the spa to turn me into Snooky. 
So if you want to see an orange Jack Buffard. Wait, does that include the sex, uh, whatever you call it? <laughs> it's, it's curious why he didn't say Paulie D. He right. said Snooky. Right. Well, because the other, like Paulie D and Mike and those guys, they do the, the real fake tanning with the tanning beds, and I don't want melanoma, so I'm going to go to the Snooky round. So you will, be, you will be post-op, right? Should I even dare to say if it hits two thousand dollars, I'll let my spray tanning be videotaped? <laughs> so anyway, TeamStupidCancer.com. You don't you don't have to support me. We have great other runners like Susan and Kenny here. Erin and Louise is running. So head on over to TeamStupidCancer.com and make a pledge. We don't care who it goes to. Just support us. And finally, folks, being that I lack both the time and the intelligence to share with you all of the great stuff we have going on for young adults, I've created the Boop News blog. Everyone needs to check out boofnews.i2y.com. That's B-O-O-F.i2y.com for the official list of all stupid cancer news resources, including surveys, exercise programs, writing workshops, peer services, and fertility resources. And that, my friends, is your stupid cancer news. All righty. Hey, can I say something real quick? Real quick. Jason Malat, our, our, our fabulous volunteer from Florida, just asked in the chat room that if they turn me into Snooky, can someone punch me in the face? <laughs> I've already responded. Fantastic. That's a brainless answer, Thanks, dude. Thanks, Beefy. Yeah. yeah. All right. It is time to bring in our first guest. Well, our second guest, technically. Well, yes. I stand corrected again. Seems to be the case all the time. David Hisekiel. The president, I, I guess founder of the Cause Marketing Forum, in spite of the economic downturn, more and more companies are teaming up with nonprofits for cause marketing alliances, and yet, just today, we found out that cause marketing may in fact be dead. We are really excited to hear how my brain is going to unscramble this mystery. So please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, my friend and yours, David Ezekiel. David. Welcome, David. David, you with us? Did you unmute him? No, he's, oh. he's unmuted. He's completely unmuted. I'm here, yep. Oh, there you go. There we go. I live on the edge. Right. I had that mute button down. Sorry about that. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. Welcome to the show. It's really great to have you. Happy to have you, David. Good to be here. Now, David, I don't know if you remember, but we've been in touch for like eight years. And yeah, it's been a long time. I was that I met you or we spoke in, in Philadelphia or something like when I was just starting to think about how stupid I should be to start a charity. <laughs> And here I am, God knows how many years later, and uh, we've actually become successful, so go figure. And I'm all about cause marketing. I spent seven years in advertising and marketing when I was not able to uh, fulfill my childhood dream to be a composer because I got sick with brain cancer. And I've always been enamored with what you do. I read your newsletter whenever it comes out. Um, I, I'm kind of like your secret Santa stalker, and wow. I'm happy to admit that on the air because I really admire – Everything you do and your your intelligence and your prowess and uh, how well you command that sector of the industry. So without further kissing your ass, I would like you to just talk about, um, first of all, what is cause marketing, why does it matter, and how did you get into it? Well, well, thank you, and uh, I hope that in, after 10 minutes of hearing me speak, you'll still have a, held me in as high esteem as right I'm now. going home right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, cause marketing – I used to say it was the building of mutually beneficial commercial relationships between companies and causes. Um, and over time, it's, it's expanded because it's quite interesting. Uh, it, you, to have cause marketing, you clearly have to have a marketer. You clearly have to have a, a business entity. 
And in most cases, businesses are working with nonprofits to build mutually beneficial relationships. But sometimes they're actually adopting causes uh, of their own making uh, and doing some of the work themselves. Uh, so it's, it is really the, the practice now of giving a voice to corporate values in a way that is good for the business and good for society. So who's an example of somebody who does that as opposed to somebody who's worked with a nonprofit? Can you give us an sure. example well, of I one mean, of each? Absolutely. So uh, an interesting example now uh, would be the uh, a program called Tide Loads of Hope. Uh, in the aftermath of many of the disasters that we had, Tide was looking for a way to uh, to give back and discovered that uh, that among the many problems people have after a hurricane or an earthquake or what have you hits their area is they have no access to clean clothes. They have no energy. They may not have water. And so Tide actually built a uh, huge 18-wheeler type conveyance that will go to disaster areas and is loaded with racks upon racks of laundry machines and will enable people to get some clean clothes to wear, which may sound pedestrian until you've been living in the same clothes for five days and, and, and don't have access to getting them clean. Now, that program, very imaginative, very uh, uh, catchy, um, and it does work in some ways uh, with some nonprofits, but it doesn't have a prominent nonprofit partner. It is not Tide Loads of Hope brought to you by X, the nonprofit. Uh, in terms of the traditional programs, my goodness, and, and you know, in, in the world, especially in the world of breast cancer, there are so many. Uh, a classic, one of the best known programs would be um, YoPlay Saving Lids to Save Lives, where people will uh, be able to uh, give, have a feeling of giving back uh, by uh, purchasing that product, sending in the lids, uh, and raising money or participating in the race for the cure that. Susan G. Komen uh, organizes because uh, uh, YoPlay is the, uh, the pr presenting sponsor of that. That is a program in which there's a very prominent partnership between this business and the nonprofit and in which the business uh, takes it in many, many different directions. So let me ask you, uh, I mean, we in the charity world, especially in the cancer world, you know, share a limited donor pool and we're always looking for what the next intelligent relationship is we can build that has meaning, depth, purpose, um, I would say measurable outcomes. And along comes something like Buckets for the Cure. Mm. And it sets the entire nonprofit arena ablaze in kind of like a what the hell are you thinking. And I was wondering if you could shed light on, from a cause marketing perspective, we read Komen's PR statement about its need uh, we never heard much about its impact. We know they raised at least $8 million, but they had to sell 17 million buckets of chicken to do that, uh, of unhealthy food. Uh, can you speak to perhaps a balance that needs to be struck between public ethics, morals, you know, oversight, um, public opinion on how far certain brands are willing to go? Well, I, you know, I think it's it's uh, it's a very interesting question. By the way, I just saw the press release. It was a uh, four point two million dollars. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, which is uh, not a drop in the bucket. No. Uh, and 
is um, I think that in retrospect, there were a lot of things that were wrong uh, or that were suboptimal at the very least in terms of that that relationship. Um, and whether uh, Komen would do it again, uh, you know, hard to say. I know that from what I hear, it is not being repeated. Uh, I, I, I frankly don't think that, that uh, eight, let's say, 8 million uh, incremental buckets of chicken that would never have, would have been sold were sold through that, pro, uh, that program. Uh, so I don't think you have to quite see it as people went running into Kentucky Fried Chicken to buy uh, this product that never would have if they were doing it because they knew it would give 50 cents to the cure. But all of that being said, clearly it, it's wisest to find a partnership in which both uh, groups can feel that they're going to come out of this uh, looking better, feeling better about what they do, uh, have the emphasis of attention beyond the positive work that they're doing, rather than um, question upon question of what in the world is, um, is, is, a, is a fast food, uh, highly saturated in fat, uh, doing uh, being associated with with breast cancer, uh, so uh, you know I think that it's 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 something that I like to call the uh, sort of the three second rule and the sixty minutes rule. The three second rule is if if when you talk about a, a relationship and the concept between the company and the cause, if people won't be able to grasp it quite quickly in that sort of three seconds, you 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 probably have to rethink what you're doing. Uh, in order to to make it effective, and secondarily, the 60 minutes rule, and maybe I'm aging myself because maybe a lot of people in your audience don't listen to this, but back in the day, uh, people in corporate America lived in fear that Mike Wallace, uh, <laughs> yeah. 60 minutes, would be coming into their offices and thrusting a microphone in their face and saying, "How come you did this?" And if you don't feel that you can defend your action. Uh, to that level of scrutiny, um, then you, again, should probably rethink whether this is a particularly uh, good idea. Well, Mike so, Wallace is getting up there in years, but the show is still on the air and yeah, still is an excellent show. I think he just show. had his 131st yeah. so, birthday. So people, should, people should still live in fear of that, yeah, absolutely. So there, whether it's Lara Logan or anybody else on the show. There are still I'm more afraid of Leslie Stahl, personally. Yeah. Right. And Andy Rooney's eyebrows. Someone's got to do something about Andy Rooney's eyebrows. Yeah, but if, if Andy Rooney's coming to your home, his eyebrows get there five minutes before he does. <laughs> so you have time to evacuate. I think he'll probably fall asleep when he has right. one foot in the door anyway. Um, David, tell us, outside of breast cancer, is cause marketing more difficult for cancer organizations in general than, say, the environment or education or other causes because essentially it's a downer? <laughs> you know, I think that every... Uh, type of cause uh, ha has its strengths and weaknesses. I should say perceived um, as a downer for actually. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, you know, I think that that uh, that cancer actually, um, yes, it's it's challenging. It can be a bummer, but that is the same reason why so many people will flock to supporting it because, as you know far better than I, there are so every one of us unfortunately knows somebody and possibly somebody very close to them who's been impacted by some variation on cancer. So that immediacy and the seriousness of it is a real strength for cancer. Uh, 
you know, when you talk about the environment, the environment can be challenging because for uh, some environmental groups, they are so, um, uh, I don't want to put a value on this, but they are so afraid of being seen as being in relationships to any company that may have a negative uh, environmental record. And once you start getting into Fortune 1000 companies, even if they're trying their best, things get, can get messy. Uh, you know, that's their, that's their cross to bear, which is that they may find it very difficult to create partnerships, uh, whereas uh, cancer has the advantage of, uh, of being something that is immediate, that is emotional, uh, and, and depending on the type of cancer, also something in which that pe people can do things for. They can either raise money for research or you can be emphasizing uh, actions that people can take to try to have healthy behaviors that may be able to help them avoid certain kinds of cancer. Certainly, there are many that, that you know there's there's no uh, no no getting out of the way of. But so I, I think that that there's there's opportunity, and I think that we're going to see uh, more and more groups, uh, uh, you know, beyond breast cancer. I'm certainly seeing it with prostate cancer has is growing, and there's new research out just recently saying that uh, men are responsive to cause marketing messages. Uh, we're seeing it. Um, with what uh, was done some years ago with colorectal cancer uh, in terms of uh, public awareness and some folks uh, getting uh, on board with that. Uh, so, uh, indeed, I, th I think and, and the American Cancer Society, which had not been very active in cause marketing, has actually, uh, in the last year, started to build some new platforms uh, that, uh, that are uh, uh, corporate-allied. Yeah, and last week, Matthew and I were in Austin, Texas, for the Livestrong Young Adult Alliance meeting. Of course. And one of the keynote speakers was a gentleman from the American Heart Association. Was it the Heart Association? Yes. Yeah, the American Heart Association. And he was talking about cause marketing and how they teamed up with President Clinton and waged a war on child obesity. And you can see some of the products, like uh, Special K has like that American Heart Association checkmark on it and such. And I posed a question to him knowing that, Everyone in the audience was from the cancer world that has a problem with Coleman's taking money from Kentucky Fried Chicken, knowing that poor nutrition leads to cancer, and asked him, you know, what's your cause marketing? Have you ever had to turn down a lot of money in order to stay with your mission? And he said that the mission always comes first and that the money is usually always fifth or sixth down the line. So, of course, they've, they've rejected a lot of money, but for them it's not a problem because money is never the issue. It's always the goal of of eating well, fighting childhood obesity, and like I said, the money was like fifth or sixth on the list. And I think that a lot of people don't realize that there are foundations and, and uh, you know, charities out there that, that won't sell their soul to the devil and take you know, money I, from, from wherever, you know, because like, you know, I'm just, I, I, I'm just like waiting for the day. I'd ask you all a question. Yeah. Have you ever eaten fast food? Uh, Jack eats it every today? day. <laughs> the last hour? Within the last 25 minutes? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I, I, I only ask that, I, again, I'm not here to be an apologist for, any, for anyone, but I sometimes think that we get on a high horse about uh, companies and what they do and selling your soul to the devil, uh, and then we go out the next day and we frequent many of those same folks. So I don't think it's quite as black and white uh, I think that there's wisdom and, and, and things that can be self and, and lack of wisdom that can be self-defeating. Uh, but often, when you're uh, so 
you, you have to have standards, and you should go after the right ones. And I completely admire the American Heart Association and the way that they've set themselves up to, um, to, to uh, analyze who they should be working with, etc. But, but you know, nobody in this world is as completely pure as some of these, your questions are leading to. I mean, the American Heart Association works with Subway, and Subway has a great lineup of low-fat foods, and it's a terrific fast food alternative. But if you want to, you can go and load it up with bacon and cheese, and you know, it's 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 not like it's being uh, it's not like it's manna being served by angels. There are decisions that we make uh, that uh, where we have to weigh checks and balances and sometimes come up with the best solutions. You know, David, to that point, this research that just came out from Edelman, uh, this good purpose study that shows that mm-hmm. Americans are, are invested in companies doing good, it strikes me a little bit like uh, I used to be an editor at, at TV Guide, and we would have surveys of our readers, and everybody always likes to check off in a survey. I love the Discovery Channel and PBS and documentaries, <laughs> when in actuality they're watching plenty of, reality shows <laughs> and the sort of fast food equivalent of television. But when you take a survey, you know, you, you, you often check what you think is the right answer. So should we take these sur- surveys with a bit of skepticism in that regard? Well, I think that they're directional. Uh, and I think that the surveys are getting uh, better and better over time. Sort of the key question that has always been cited in the cause marketing world is, Price and quality being equal, would you prefer to purchase products from a company that supports causes that you believe in? And what's interesting is that when that com- when when Cone, the public relations agency that's one of the founding uh, leaders in in cause marketing, started asking that question 25 years ago, you'd get responses that might say two thirds of the people would say yes. Well. Now you're seeing uh, answers in the 80% area. So to me, that, that kind of motherhood and apple pie question, it sort of surprised me that 100% of the people didn't say it 25 years ago. And so I think that we can use, if we look at these things over time, we can see that there actually is an increased consciousness of corporate social responsibility, a feeling that people are more analytical about uh, about the products that they buy and at least would like to be uh, doing business or going to work for companies uh, that, uh, that they believe in. So I agree with you that, that there is probably a gap between how often we actually do these things that we aspire to and, 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 and how much we say we, did, we would, but at the same time, the needle is moving in that direction and we are seeing uh, that, uh, that this has become even more important for consumers. I want to have you back on the show in a couple of weeks because I, w- I would like to just dedicate a whole show to this because there's so much, but there's so much corporate abuse. There's so much, uh, you know, we did a show with Dan Pallotta, who I'm sure you know very well, mm-hmm. um, and we had um, the uh, CEO of um, the Charity Navigator on the show, and they were, you know, they have their own disparities against each other from right. my opinion, but it was a really good dialogue about how consumer advocacy really needs to adapt to the sort of the, the potential loopholes in being taken advantage of. But with the two minutes we have left, I just wanted you to touch a little bit on, you know, Carol Cohn, who we're talking about, who is actually yeah. a friend of mine for many, many years and has been on our uh, Corporate Social Responsibility Advisory Board for, for three years. Um, her, her quote today was, cause marketing is dead and the new 
the new black is purpose. Um, you know, that's jargony in our world. But for the sake of people out there, how does that translate into consumer engagement? Absolutely. Well, well, two things. The, the actual quote is, cause marketing as we know it is dead. And I think it was really saying that the lowest common denominator, um, very loose association programs that are in and out of the marketplace very quickly and just say, buy this and we'll give a dime every time you do it, and next month we're on to doing something completely different, that that kind of program is, 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 is really going to have a hard time competing in the marketplace for anybody's loyalty or attention because cause marketing isn't rare. 25 years ago, it was a unique thing, and just doing it per se could get you a lot of attention because it was, it was, it was different. Now I'm happy to say that there's a lot of this programming out there, and, uh, and the, the bar has been raised, and the tools that people have, if they happen to get an itch to learn more, make it much easier to get deeper into what's out there using the uh, Internet and comparing notes with your friends through social media. Uh, so what Carol is really saying is uh, that for those of us who want to see uh, corporate uh, funding uh, and other resources going towards programs that support good causes, uh, we have to do an even better job to make it effective and sustainable. Otherwise, uh, they'll, they'll go to doing something else, and I'd rather have the money going to cause sponsorships than sports sponsorships or uh, entertainment sponsorships. Not that there's anything wrong with those, but I don't think they have the positive societal impact that cause marketing can. Spoken like a true gentleman. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Like I said, uh, we want you to be our pundit. <laughs> well, <laughs> We'd I'm, love to have you back and, and opine. I would d be delighted, and thank you so much for having me, and thanks for the good work that you're doing. Okay, thank David. You, David. Thanks David. David Asakio from the Cause Marketing Forum. Yeah, can you pass me a piece of chicken, please? <laughs> <laughs> we could go on and on and on and on about this stuff, but uh, we have a great guest coming up to round up the show. A tremendous a compliment to David from the other side of the equation, speaking of Buckets for the Cure. So let's intro her, and she's a... She's a bit of a, a wild child. We love this. So we're going to play this song here. And she has so many credentials, which we love, too. We'll get to a few of them here. Dr. Gail Sulik received her M.A. in Women's Studies in 2001 and her Ph.D. in Sociology from the State University of New York at Albany. From 2004 to 2007, she served as a visiting assistant professor at Vassar College. That's right up here in Poughkeepsie. And from 2007 to 2010, as a tenure-track assistant professor at the Texas Women's University. She's currently a research associate in the Department of Women's Studies at the University of Albany. And in her book, Pink Ribbon Blues, How Breast Cancer Culture Undermines Women's Health, she highlights the hidden cost of the pink ribbon as an industry, while survivors and supporters walk, run, and purchase pink items for a cure. Cancer rates rise. The cancer industry thrives. Corporations claim responsible citizenship while profiting from the disease. And breast cancer is stigmatized anew for those who reject the pink ribbon model. That's what the book says, folks. She's here to talk all about it. We're thrilled to have her. Gail Sulik joins us. Hello, Gail. Hello. Wild child. I don't think I've been called that before. <laughs> well, you're, you're written up in like every piece, and it's like, there she is again, there she is again, and I get all these emails. Do you know this person? Do you know this person? Like she's coming on the show, so we're really excited to have you. Sometimes we introduce Thank guests you. as being raised by wolves. So wild child, like, <laughs> by comparison, Last week. yes. <laughs> no, you're a rabble rouser, and I like yes. that. I like that a lot, and I like the article where you were in the same piece as Nancy Brinker's biography. 
Yeah, yeah. It was very interesting to see that juxtaposition. Yes. So how did you get into this game? Obviously, you were motivated by something that bothers the crap out of you as much as it bothers the crap out of us. Well, this actually started a long, fairly long time ago. I actually started um, doing this research back in 2001, and it was through um, basically witnessing the, the diagnosis, recurrence, and death, unfortunately, of a friend who had been diagnosed at 30. She was young, uh, and she died by, by the time she was 40. And so as I started, you know, wanting to support this this friend and learn more about the issues that that particularly young women were facing with breast cancer, I started to get involved with a community organization where I lived and learn more and what is it about advocacy, what are the issues, how do people learn and make decisions, how do they support one one another, and I started to interview diagnosed women. and that all kind of turned into a, a big study of what is this entire system that has been created around the pink ribbon and breast cancer. And I started to look at promotional materials and advertising and all of this stuff. And I realized that there was an entire system that was built up around breast cancer. Um, and until you really look at the whole system and all the spokes on, on the wheel, you don't necessarily see how they mutually reinforce one another. Um, so it's really taking a look at the, the big picture and then how that big picture influences people when they're diagnosed. Is it, and, Gail, why specifically breast cancer? I mean, we know the numbers are fairly outrageous, one in eight. Is it the frequency? Is it because it's women? Is it, is, is it also because there's an underlying guilt on behalf of men? Is it Why specifically breast cancer? Ooh, it's all of those things. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, you know, this really grew out of a very vibrant women's health movement, and the breast cancer movement came out of the women's health movement of the 1970s, and a desire to have women know themselves, know their bodies, and, and take a different kind of role as a medical consumer, an informed medical consumer. And so it's based in that history. Um, and then once you add the pink ribbon to the mix, which didn't happen until around 92, um, then we started to see the, the shift into mass media, the shift into marketing, and how the symbol itself took on a very feminized role. And at that point, you could see that breast cancer started to become sexy. And you really see that today. You see a lot of skin. You see cleavage. You don't see those kinds of things when we talk about lung cancer or heart disease. And you and if you talk about women's disease, ovarian cancer is certainly a killer, but you Absolutely. can see breasts to your point, and they are right. sexual. You can't see ovaries. You don't right. think in terms of sexuality. And we had a guest in here in studio, an ovarian cancer survivor, and she says, "Well, teal is the cover of ova- color of ovarian cancer. You don't see teal plastered everywhere during ovarian right. cancer month." Right. You don't, and you see, you see. I mean, breast cancer advertising fits in so seamlessly with other advertising, so you don't even necessarily need to know. You can flip through Vogue or Self Magazine or anything else. You won't necessarily be able to differentiate unless you read the fine print whether we're looking at an ad that's breast cancer cause marketing related or whether it's you know some other ad for fashion or cosmetics or something else. They look, they look the same. And what is it that women can do to be made more aware of this and not get swept away and fall prey to all of this? I mean, in this terrific piece in the New York Times by Peggy Orenstein where she yeah. uh, quotes you and, and also uh, Barbara Ehrenreich is saying um, 
that breast cancer patients become infantilized patients. And she has this quote saying, men diagnosed, you know, they're also, you can be given, for instance, a teddy bear with a pink ribbon. And she says, men diagnosed with prostate cancer do not receive gifts of matchbook cars. Right. Which which I think is is a great point. Yeah, I mean, when you look at this stuff, and you have to look at it systematically to see the patterns. Otherwise, we're swimming in a sea of pink, and you don't necessarily differentiate one product from the next. But if you break it down and look at one of the types of things being advertised, you see things like the M&Ms and the dolls and the Barbie doll and, uh, you know, all of these kinds of things, teddy bears that, that are infantilizing, treating women like children. But you also see things that put women in their roles. You see pink kitchen aids and retro appliances and all of those things that say women should cook and clean and serve and do it with pink stuff. Um, and then you see the, the sexualization, you see cleavage and, you know, all of the, and the stuff that, that Peggy Orenstein was talking about with I heart boobies, you know, you can say boobies now and it's for the cure and it's okay. Um, and so what does that do for, do to women and for women and what does it do for the cause? Um, and I think what can people do is they can just start to look, they can start to notice and, and ask themselves, is this the way I want this cause to be represented? So what kind of response have you gotten from the book? Clearly you're making waves. You're getting a lot of media. Uh, have you gotten any, like, like hate mail or people, like, saying, how dare you step on my breast cancer? Yeah, <laughs> there has been some. Um, I, I've gotten fan mail, too, so I'm happy about that. But I have gotten some of, of the hate mail, and usually it, it comes from people who haven't read the book. Um, and Isn't so that always think, the case? Yeah, yeah. Um, so th- there is a lot of data in there, and, um, and and I really tried very hard to show how the patterns connect. So when I present it to people and can give them more background, then, then people tend to look at it and say, wow, I, I see this. I hadn't noticed necessarily before, but I see it. Um, so it's actually gotten a, a fairly good response uh, from people who will look. Well, I don't know how early on you... You called into the show, but we were just speaking with David Hisekiel from the Cause Marketing Forum, an yeah. uh, Uber guru guy about this stuff, and he talked about you know the Yoplait lids, which yeah. several groups take umbrage with, and the Breast Cancer Action Group. I don't know if you know Barbara Brenner, but yeah. she would love your yeah. book. Um, you know, people have problems with the um, with the uh, the lids because you have to spend money on stamps for them to actually make a donation to Komen when you should just make the donation yourself and screw the yogurt. So right. do you have a particular penchant for any one or or other positive use of pink ribbons, or do you think in general it sets sort of an anthropological tone that's sort of, you know, uh, jumped the shark? Well, I think that, well, it, it's a tough question. You know, it, it's definitely, I, I did sneak in and hear some of what uh, David was talking about. I was glad I got to hear some of it. Um you know, it's not all good or bad. It's not good or evil. Corporations are not human beings, and therefore they are not good or evil, and probably human beings aren't either. Um, but to think about the fact that the pink ribbon was actually born in a corporate environment probably matters. I mean, it was born through Estee Lauder and Self Magazine in a boardroom, 
And that probably has a different effect than if it had come really from the ground up, like the, the peach ribbon, which actually was, was the ribbon. Right, it was peach ribbon, wasn't it? Right, right. right. Um, so what, is, what does it mean to have it situated within a corporate environment, which is really highly focused on advertising? And I think, you know, what has happened with the pink ribbon is that it – you know, cause marketing has just given pink ribbon culture a platform to disseminate very widely some very narrow messages about what breast cancer is and and how to support the cause. Um, And because of that, those messages are very widespread. But if you look at the movement, and you mentioned Breast Cancer Action, and there are a number of other organizations, um, you see a split. You You see... organizations that have corporate funders and organizations that don't or they don't have a lot. And so asking ourselves who has the megaphone is really important here, what they represent, what they're trying to do. Um, I don't know if I answered your question, though. <laughs> no, I think I think it's – I believe there's a balance. I mean, as David said, that we're looking at a sort of a shift in the philosophy of what cause marketing means and its purpose – I always like to say, and we we all agree here at I2Y and the Stupid Cancer Show and the, the culture of you know, sort of young cancer, is that you know awareness is only as good as the action it engenders, and right. you know mentioning where you put your purse on Facebook or what color your bra is or buying a pink blender, there's no real action there, and it doesn't basically encourage consumers to do anything more than feel good about themselves. So right. is, is consumer narcissism really engendering change for the causes they're trying to support, or is it endorsing sort of this selfish selflessness that people think they need to have because they have, you know, whatever inadequacies in their in their lives that they have to fill by thinking they're doing well or doing good? Well, yeah, there is a lot of lifestyle involved in this. So when you look at what it is that is that is being advertised, you know, at one point. Things are being advertised, and you could see, okay, these are diagnosed people, these are survivors, this represents them. But now the warrior for the cause can be anybody. You can be a warrior for the cause, and all you need to do is buy your tattoos from Ford Motor Company on their website for seven ninety nine, or whatever it is, put them on your face and be a warrior for the cause. So what is that about? You know, what is that about? And you use the word narcissism, but I I think there is something to that, Um, that there is a desire to feel good about what we're doing and have fun while we're doing it. And there is some lifestyle connected to the the pink ribbon at this point. And, of course, again, making the images palatable. We're not seeing, actually, the folks who are dying to the point, again, we're seeing the sexy folks right. and the high heels and images that are palatable to everybody to everybody yeah. and again more more palatable to men and palatable to many women as well yeah i mean 1993 was when it was interesting to to see orenstein's article come out today um in new york times magazine because in 1993 and she talked about this the cover had the image of a woman's mastectomy scar matushka and you know, I, I think you would not see that image today. You would not see the same kinds of realities around what breast cancer does to women's bodies and what the treatment of breast cancer does to women's bodies either. So we've we've definitely um, kind of created a homogenized image of this is the survivor. She's positive. She's happy. She can be cured um, and get on with her life and be transformed by it. 
And then the realities are that, you know, still in 20 years after diagnosis, a woman diagnosed with an invasive type and the type that can spread, the the survival rates are still um, that about 40% of those women will die. And particularly, so, yes, and particularly in our constituency. I mean, I am uh, was diagnosed at 29 and uh, mm-hmm. fortunately I'm uh, about 15 years out at this point, but the tough thing for our generation are the survival rates uh, are pretty grim for those under yeah. 40 compared to those who are over 40. Many yeah. more of us lose our lives to the disease. That, as, it's a, as you know, a much more aggressive disease to the folks who listen to our show. Right, right. And so we don't necessarily see those realities. We see images that we should have faith and hope in science and that science is working, and when we buy that pink thing, it goes to research, and as someone, you know, as you pointed out earlier, that may or may not go to research. Um, And so the bar does need to be higher, and I'm happy that David said that it is. I think it could be higher than it even is now. Um, And so if we think about what is the benefit to society, you know, if our goal is to eradicate the disease, are we really moving toward that? Are these actions really moving toward that? Right, and that's that's sort of um, that, that's the case that's made across the board by by you know like ad ages, all these pieces about this. And again, speaking with um, with Dan Pallotta, uh where are we in terms of actually producing tangible results? And if there are tangible results, how do the people who are embracing the cause marketing or buying the pink blender or seeing a pink porta potty and deciding to do something about it if that actually mm-hmm. happens you know is there any accountability held on the part of the consumer once they take an action to actually care about what happens after that action is taken and i, no. I don't think so i don't think so at all <laughs> no. there isn't there's not um and so you know there that that also comes back to the narcissism again I, you know i i would like to say i mean on the one hand and cone has shown this as well that people to, people do want to put their money where their mouths are and that's why they buy something pink to begin with because they want they think it's a good thing i want to support this um so there there is that first level of of critical thinking involved in that purchase. But then we have to take it a step further and say, okay, now where is it going? Is it enough to stop here or do we need to look deeper? And from what we have found, we do need to look deeper. We need to to look at whether companies are creating uh, or manufacturing products that contribute to the cancer burden or that contribute to ill health in other ways. Um, and decide for ourselves, is it good enough to support that company if, if they are actually contributing in some way directly or even indirectly to the problem that we're trying to solve. Well, we we actually have a caller. Um a caller. We have a well, no, we, we don't usually take calls, but we have we a, have a VIP caller. caller. Yeah, uh, Barack Obama's on the line. Oh, <laughs> He wants to buy I've some buckets for the store. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, actually um Peggy Ornstein is calling in. Oh um, my gosh. So, <laughs> let's bring her on. Peggy, are you with us? Yes, but I am not Peggy Orenstein. I'm Peggy, a professor of advertising from the University of Georgia. Oh, okay. Well, we forgive you. But we like it. you too, Peggy. Yeah, we like you too. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I just want, one of my concerns. I I work on the ethics of this sort of thing. Is I want to know if we believe we kind of collectively believe that corporate CEOs really have the expertise to make decisions about the most appropriate way to sort of 
fight the problem. And I, you know, I'm sort of referring back to Barbara Ehrenreich's comment about if the pink ribbon turned green. That is, if we started to work on the cause rather than the cure and gave more money to that, um, that would be a different way to tackle the problem. Well, thank you, Peggy, for your question. Okay, thanks. Yes. Gail? And all Peggy's. I'm happy for the Peggy's. Um, <laughs> There's yeah, another Peggy calling in. No, I'm kidding. It's such a great question, and, and I think that that really, you know, in thinking about the, the partnership, because we're talking about corporate partnerships, right? So it's not surprising to think that a corporation might want to partner up with something and increase revenues and consumer loyalty and, and employee loyalty. That's part of what cause marketing does. But then what happens on the other side of that partnership, who takes money from whom, under what conditions, what are the, the standards, and that is also where organizations can come in and actually press those CEOs who don't necessarily have background and the expertise to say these are the kinds of things that need to be supported. I don't think they necessarily have that expertise. And unlike other corporate philanthropy programs, um, and there are a number of them out there, you know, a, a program might, you know, you might have a tech company that goes into a school district and gives computers and training, and that's good for the schools, that's good for the company, it creates the future of technology in that area, win-win. But they have an expertise in that field of technology. And does Ford Motor Company have an expertise in health? Does KFC have an expertise in health and cancer? No. Um, probably not. <laughs> I'll <laughs> just say no. So, yeah, those are really, really important questions. And that's where the organizations that partner, I think, have to take some major responsibility there as well. Well, we're almost out of time. The website is pinkribbonblues.com. It's an amazing book. Everyone should check it out. Peg, um, Peggy, sorry, Gail, <laughs> too many Peggy's today. We're Peggy'd out. <laughs> Peggy Sue got married. Remember that movie? Anyway, I'm old. Lisa um, does. I don't. <laughs> Nick Cage. Larry, all right, um, Gail, what would you say is the the most relevant takeaway you would like consumers to draw from reading your book? I would like um, consumers to pay attention actively. Um, because it's really clear that there are many people who support this cause. They want to do a good thing. They want to help. So in, in directing and, and looking a little bit deeper into how to actually help the cause, that requires some work. And what I'm hoping is that the book gives enough evidence and enough data that it, that it actually provides some tools on how to look a little bit deeper and then consider whether or not the ways we're supporting this cause are actually going to contribute to the ultimate goal, which is the eradication of breast cancer. And while I don't know personally if that is possible, I do feel very strongly that moving toward prevention and avoidance of cancer altogether is a step in the right direction, and how do we do that? And I hope that the book is going to give people information that they need to think about that deeply. That's actually the right answer. <laughs> I have yes. said so. Congratulations. Well, well, we we can't thank you enough for being on the show. I hope we give you a little bump. It's a brilliant book. Uh, everyone needs to take a look at it. Love it or hate it, it's going to be very insightful. It's going to spark conversation and dialogue, which is what needs to happen. And we're all about consumer advocacy and being a watchdog group. Thank you so much for doing what you do. Thank you, Gail. Thank you. Thank okay. you, both. Gail Sulik, everybody. Very exciting. Really good stuff. Yeah.
We could do like three hours on this stuff. I have, a, I have a confession to make. You did go to Kentucky Fried Chicken, didn't you? No. I am Kentucky Fried Chicken's nutritional correspondent or expert or whatever. It's a no-show job, but they don't pay me. Okay. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I don't either. But you know what? We, we actually did almost go a whole show without this. So apparently... It sounds like he took we the whole too. show to craft that, and I still don't understand it, Matt. No, because you couldn't smell his brain this whole time. <laughs> That's why you had to put the air on. <laughs> yeah, I did smell something And it wasn't burning. a brain fart. No, it wasn't a brain fart. Matt and I are completely lost. I really hate when I try to think and nothing happens. Screw you guys. I got home. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's it. That's our show tonight. And now it's time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's tonight's show, our 160th broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at stupid cancer. We'd like to thank our guests, Naomi Bartley, David Ezekiel from the Cause Marketing Forum, and Gail Sulik, author of Pink Ribbon Blues. Next week's show, Advocacy Innovation. What is Advocacy Innovation? Find out on next week's show when we have Samantha Green, young adult cancer activist and founder of Crawl for Cancer. Also, Dean Brown, young adult survivor of ovarian cancer and host of MTV's Real World Road Rules Challenge, Fresh Meat, founder of MedGift.com. And kicking it off in our Survivor Spotlight, Lenka Darrett. You know her from the model from one of the models from Project Runway in the fall 2010 season, young adult survivor of AML, acute myelogenesis leukemia. All on next week's show, folks. All right, if you missed any of our past shows, subscribe to the iTunes podcast and download them at iTunes.iTunes.com or check out the archives at stupidcancershow.com. Remember, folks, if it's not stupid, it's not cancer. We'll see you all back here next week live from the chemo deck. Jack Buffard, Lisa Bernhardt, Amanda Freeman, Captain Simi, and I wish you all a great week. Go to bed, Peggy. Peggy. All righty, folks, we're out. Good night. Good night, everybody.